can living water thirst? Just for fun, at the weddings, he made wine when there was none, and told a woman by the well of one that doesn't run dry. For some, he's the rabbi of simple solutions. Pick up your mat and roll away the tomb, like it's passing the salt or finding the moon. But now, by the stalk of a hyssop plant, they feed the king of the Jews. It's one last sip before it is finished. A backwards communion. The wine's gone bad, and look who is feeding whom. Has the well run dry? Will the last become first? He told us his kingdom is not of this world, and neither, it seems, is his thirst. Da Sumbe. I am thirsty. Good morning, Menlo Church. It's good to be with you. My name is Cheryl, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are one church in many locations, so greetings uh, to our folks who are joining us online, Mountain View, Saratoga, San Mateo, and hi. Good to be with you this morning. Um, one of the privileges that I've had in ministry, uh, and just in life, um, is to get to walk alongside folks who are exploring Christianity. And I've gotten to do that for years and years and years. And always when I'm in this kind of friendship, I've got one of these conversations going on with a friend right now. And one of the questions that always comes up is, why did Jesus have to die? Now, of course, that seems like a normal question when you're exploring Christianity, but my friends will add to it. They'll say, you know, if Jesus's death is just kind of an act of love, there's lots of ways that you can express love. You don't have to die. They'll note that, um, you know, probably hundreds if not thousands were executed by crucifixion uh, in that time, and people didn't form religions around those folks, right? They'll say this, which I always find intriguing and a great conversation. If Jesus' death is just about our forgiveness, there's lots of ways you can forgive people without having to die, right? So how is it? How is it that this particular death of this particular person changed the world? that a small group of Jesus followers in a tiny little speck on the planet grew to thousands of Jesus followers that expanded beyond countries and ethnicities and cultures to become millions of Jesus followers that we have today. Why did Jesus have to die? That's what we've been considering when we look at the words of Jesus on the cross. We've been looking at these words for the past few weeks and we're gonna continue looking at those words. Today we're gonna look at one little verse that contains the words of Jesus. It's found in John chapter 19, verse 28. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll also have the verses on the screen. Before we dive into the scripture, let's pray. 
If you feel comfortable, you might open your palms up. I do this just to align my heart and my mind with what I desire. We gather in this place, God, to hear from you. That by your word, by your spirit, you would speak to us. And Lord, I pray that you would speak so personally to the person who needs to hear your personal word to them today. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. You are my rock, you are my God, you are my friend, my savior and my king. We receive from you now by your word and your spirit in Jesus name. So in John chapter 19, verse 28, he writes, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. There is so much in this. In one little verse, 16 words, finished. We're going to talk about that next week, and it's really, really important. To fulfill scripture, I thirst. What's this about? This is what I want to focus on for our time together. I want to focus on what I think John is putting on display, the sovereign control of God and the satisfying favor of God. The sovereign control of God and the satisfying favor of God. You see, the crucifixion of Jesus looked like a complete defeat, right? Multiple times, Jesus had told his little band of followers that he was gonna have to die, and they were having none of it. They did not expect a death. There's this one moment, one of my favorite scenes in the life of Jesus, when Peter, one of his close followers, um, Jesus has said, hey, I'm going to have to die. That's part of the plan. And Peter's like, not having it, not going to have it happen. It, the, the word used is Jesus, or Peter rebuked Jesus. And then Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You have not arrived with Jesus till he has called you Satan. Um, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're opposing the will of God because that's what the Satans do. They oppose the will of God. You see, Peter was a part of that, those band of followers, those folks who were following Jesus. And just prior to this conversation, Jesus had asked, hey, who do you say that I am? And Peter and these other followers had declared, you're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited Messiah that our scripture has told us about, who we have been waiting for. You're the Christ. You're the coming and conquering king. And they were ready to reign with Jesus in his kingdom. 
Death was not what they were expecting. On the cross, Jesus doesn't look like a conquering king. He looks like a devastated, dehydrated, dying rabbi. And the followers are now in despair. None of this made sense to them. It didn't make sense to them until after the resurrection, which they also were not expecting a resurrection. And so John, who was an eyewitness of this, John, who was one of those followers, wrote this particular gospel after the resurrection. And so when he gives an account of what he heard and saw on the cross, again, he was right there, he adds commentary, right? He's looking back. And so he adds this commentary. He wrote, to fulfill the scripture. Now, when he was seeing Jesus die on the cross, when he heard Jesus speak, he wasn't, he wasn't thinking Jesus is fulfilling any kind of scripture, but he looks back and he goes, ah, oh, that's what was happening. To fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. Because John could look back and he could see that Jesus was quoting from Psalm 22, which was considered what we would call a messianic Psalm. It was a prophecy of the Messiah's coming, and likely it was a reference also to Psalm 69. These were psalms written by David, who would prophesy of the coming of the Messiah, who would come through his line. And this is what John wants us to see. God is in control. God is in control. Jesus' death is not a mistake. It's God's eternal plan. It's not plan B, it's plan A. And this truth begins on the very first pages of our Bible, and it shows up all the way through to the very last pages of our Bible. Jesus' life was not taken from him. It was given by him. That's important. Jesus' life was not taken from him. It was given by him to fulfill the scripture which contains the will of God. That's what we have in the scripture, the will of God. And the will of God is to bring us into his presence. The will of God is to restore your identity he wants to restore our identity into the creature that we were created to be, to be those who reflect God's image in every area of our life. The will of God is to make us people who are flourishing under the satisfying favor of God. And this is what John wants us to see. This is what Jesus is doing. Peter would look back. Remember Peter who was called Satan? Peter would write a book that's in our Bible and he would say this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is to have a right standing with God. It's to have a right standing before God. But what Jesus makes possible is not just a right standing before God, but that we would become the actual righteousness of God. And this is hard to understand. It's hard to understand how wonderful this is because I'm not quite sure we, we're even thinking it this way. We don't use these terms in our vernacular. We don't go around saying, well, I want to be righteous. That kind of sounds obnoxious, right? We don't say, I'm looking for my righteousness. But maybe we are. Maybe we are. What if our longing for righteousness is behind our striving for validation? What if our longing for righteousness is behind the fear that justifies our imposter syndrome? This fear that if people were to really know us, if they were really to know our thoughts, if they were really to understand us, we wouldn't be nearly as valuable to them. One theologian and writer says this about righteousness, this righteousness that God offers. He says, righteousness is our validating performance record. It's like a job resume, right? He, he says it this way. He says, you want a job, so you show your resume. And your resume validates that you are worthy for the job. We are striving, Let me, maybe you're not, but I am. We are striving and performing to find validation in every area of our life. If you're a student, good grades are your validation. If you're a parent, the success of your child could be your validation. If you're an employee, your performance bonus is your validation. Right, And let me say this, these are all good things. It is a good thing to get good grades and to go after that. It is a good thing to want your children to be successful and try to set them up for that, right? It is a good thing to get a performance bonus, right? But these very things, these very good things, they can be soul crushing. They can become soul crushing when they become our ultimate source of validation. I have to have this thing. I have to have it as the source of telling me that I'm worthy, that I'm valuable, that I matter, because then I'm only as worthy as my grades, right? I'm only as worthy as my success. And then I'm destroyed by my failures. 
Here's how I know when I am making success at work the ultimate validation of my worth. I wish this weren't a true story, but it is. Um, I get some negative feedback in a job review, right? Or I get negative feedback from me on a sermon. And rather than receiving that feedback as an opportunity for growth, I'm devastated. And my devastation shows up in defensiveness. It shows up in blame. It shows up in immaturity, even at my age. I'm not bad, you're bad. (laughs) Who am I? Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. By the work of Jesus on the cross, I'm given worthiness. I'm giving validation, if you will. And it's by the one who matters most to me. It's by the one who created me, who says you're valuable, you're worthy. He grants that to me. In theological terms, we call it imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Imputation is the legal term meaning to reckon to someone's account. To reckon to someone's account. So our sin is imputed to Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to us. Might be too soon to use a banking analogy, but I'm going to. This is, what, this is what imputed righteousness looks like. This is what this means. You have a debt, imagine, you have a debt of $100,000. And then someone imputes $500,000 into your account. They impute your debt onto themselves. They cover it. They take care of it. And they impute their riches Onto you. Jesus paid your debt and gives you his righteousness. Sit with that. Jesus imputed your debt onto himself and imputed his righteousness onto you. This is a disruptive grace, right? This is the disruptive, confounding grace of Jesus that's applied to us through his life and his death and his resurrection. And on paper and in our Bible studies, we like it. But I'm not sure in reality we really do. I kind of prefer (laughs) self-righteousness. even if it's exhausting and and soul-crushing. You see, self-righteousness says, it's all up to me. I earned it, I controlled it. Here's what we like. So I deserve it. I wanna deserve it. I wanna earn it. I wanna have controlled it. I wanna be the one who made it happen. And at the deepest root, of the condition of sin 
is destructive self-sufficiency. At the deepest root of the condition of sin that we all have is destructive self-sufficiency. It is a life that has no need for God. We'll do it on our own. We'll earn it. We'll deserve it. And of course, this condition of sin can show up in addictions and behaviors that are pretty easy to identify as destructive to ourselves and others. But this condition of sin can also show up in an external moralism, a do-gooderness, right? Any of y'all do-gooders so that you can look good? so you can earn it, so you can deserve it, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting. There's a scene in a novel that I read years ago called The Things They Carried, and it's a fictitious novel, but it's set in the Vietnam War, and the guy who's the narrator in the novel, he talks about his friend Norman, and he says this, he says he remembers his friend Norman saying, if I could have one wish, anything, I'd wish for my dad to write me a letter and say, it's okay if I don't win any medals. That's all my old man talks about, nothing else. How he can't wait to see my darn medals. I wish for my dad to write me a letter and say it's okay if I don't win any medals. To become the righteousness of God is given, not earned. It's given, not earned. It's not the favor of a parent waiting to see what you will do with your life. It's the favor of a parent who holds their newborn, and before that newborn has done anything, they declare, you have all of my love. You are my most treasured, my most valuable possession. You are mine. You will always be mine. You are enough. Pastor Tim Keller says this. He says, it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance. You get the verdict before the performance. And this is the beauty of Christianity. This is the beauty. This is the satisfying favor of God. This is the way of Jesus. The one choosing to thirst is the one who satisfies our thirst for validation, for favor, for worthiness. And here's the really good news. If we can't earn it, we can't lose it. It's too good to be true, right? But it's true. This is the good news of Jesus. It's the satisfying favor of God. If we can't earn it, we can't lose it. 
John is the only gospel that records Jesus saying on the cross, I thirst. And John is also the gospel that records Jesus having a conversation with a really, really thirsty woman. A woman who had had five husbands and the man that she was currently with was not her husband. In that culture, the validation of a woman was dependent upon marriage. And over and over, this woman, searching for her validation, just like we do, kept coming up empty, right? So Jesus starts a conversation with her. He sits down by a well that she had come to to get some water, and he asks her for a drink. And she says, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's thinking physically, he's talking spiritually, right? Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. And yet he thirsts. How can this be? This only can be because of who Jesus is. To understand the necessity of Jesus' death and why we worship Jesus and how a little band of followers 2,000 years ago became millions of followers today, we have to stare at Jesus for a little bit. So that's how I want to close our time. And it's just in the Gospel of John that this is laid out, these pictures of who Jesus is. And here they are, Jesus, the giver of living water, thirsts. See the lengths that Jesus will go to for us. See the upside down kingdom that Jesus brings. Jesus, the giver of living water, thirsts to fulfill the will of the Father found in the scripture. Jesus, the king, took a towel, wrapped it around his waist to serve and to wash feet. Jesus, fully God, became flesh and dwelt among us so we could see God full of grace and truth. Jesus, fully God and fully man, this is so critical to what happens in his life and his death and his resurrection. Not Jesus, part man, part God. Not Jesus in a God, you know, man suit, God in a man suit, or man in a God suit, right? Fully God, fully man. This is as deep and profound and necessary as the Trinity. It is a mystery, but it matters. This is who Jesus is. Jesus, infinite God, who becomes intimate 
and draws near. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, dies so we can live. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, the good shepherd, becomes the lamb. John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. This is his sovereignty. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority, which is sovereignty. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. This command I received from my father. Jesus, the good shepherd, is the one when John sees him, says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, we have this glimpse into the throne room of God. And God is described as a lamb, and before him are people of every nation, ethnicity, culture, and language. And Revelation says, 7 says this, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. That's so good. good. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them. Not like it beat down on Jesus on the cross. The sun will not beat down on them, not, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. He will be your shepherd. He will be my shepherd. Jesus thirsts so that we might be satisfied in him, by him, through him, and for him. Oh, Jesus, we so thank you. We thank you that you lived a life we could never live for our sake. And you died a death we could have never died. And you were raised again that we would never hunger and we would never thirst for our own righteousness, but we would receive your righteousness imputed upon us that we could live in freedom, not striving for validation, not striving to prove and to perform, but to receive. And we receive that now, your kindness, your goodness, 
your satisfying favor, we say yes. We want that, Lord. We want that.